0: Today's teaching is from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body... However, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Thank you, Lord for your church. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for being here, hearing your word. And bless Robin now and open our hearts and minds and ears for both men and women here, young or old, to receive what you have through Robin for us. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. So, um, there are a number of other pastors in this congregation, and at least a couple of them have come up to me this morning and said, "Well, I'm glad you're preaching on this, not me." <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, hopefully, we'll have a, an enlightening time this morning because one of the uh, one of the big criticisms or accusations even, um, against Christians by outsiders, is often that we're obsessed with sex. And they'll point to this um, as proof of that. Now, it may be true that for much of history, the church may have viewed um, sex as inherently dirty or bad. But you don't find that in Scripture. That's not in the Bible. Uh, that idea actually comes from the influences of Greek philosophy in the early church. The, the Bible is very positive about sex. There's even a quite me love poem in the Bible. It's called The Song of Songs. What the Bible does on, however, is that sex is a powerful force. And it needs to be kept in its place. So, chapters Corinthians are about sex, with a little digression in the middle about taking people to court, and we'll get to that next week. <laughs> um, this morning, we'll spend most of our time in the second half of chapter six, but before we go there. I want to actually draw your attention back to the beginning of chapter 5, which is where this whole thing starts. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this, So there, in a nutshell, is the issue that Paul is responding to. Not only is there a case of blatant incest in the church, the Corinthians actually seem to be congratulating themselves on how broad-minded they are in allowing this to happen. He says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Now, different societies have different standards for for what constitutes incest, right? But here was something that actually the pagans in Corinth and the believers should have agreed on, because both Greek culture and the Old Testament agreed that you don't sleep with your stepmother. And yet, here was this man doing this, and far from confronting him on his behavior the church seemed to say it was okay. So that's a background for the passage that we're looking at today. In the rest of chapter 5, Paul argues that the church is supposed to look different from society around it. That may be difficult sometimes, but we're supposed to look different. And that people in the church who continue to live in ways that are contrary to God's instructions need to be confronted about it, and if they don't change, they need to be asked to leave. Now, talking about making judgment calls on people's um, behavior in the church, that's what leads Paul to go off on a tangent about taking each other before secular judges. And that's what the first part of chapter 6 is about. And then he comes back to the original topic uh, around verse 9 of chapter 6. And that's where we pick up the thread again. Paul says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? We use this passage in our call to worship this morning. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now when he says that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, he isn't saying any more than Jesus did. That our behavior is a mark of whether or not we belong to Jesus. So when people who claim to be followers of Jesus consistently live in ways that are at odds with what Jesus taught, we have the right and we have the responsibility to challenge them on their faith. So if I start to behave in ways that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus, you have the responsibility of challenging me or anybody about my behavior and how it relates to what I claim to believe. So this isn't just, you know, something coming from the platform down. This goes the other way too, right? We're all accountable to one another for how we walk in the Lord. But wrongdoers is a kind of vague category, right? So Paul gives us some examples. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just some examples. Examples that were relevant to the Corinthians, He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, every society has its own set of what it calls wrongdoing, right? And different cultures rank sins differently. I think we're aware of that. Honor cultures like this part of the world tend to um, uh, tend to rank telling untruths or lying much lower down the scale than Westerners would. Westerners are very 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 concerned with being accurate and truthful, whereas Easterners are more concerned about honor and saving face and are willing to lie in order to, to see that happen. We can have a whole other discussion about that some other time. Um, but certainly there are different standards for what, consider, what people consider wrongdoing, right? But it's probably a surprise to most people that right in there with the adulterers and idolaters are also the greedy and the slanderers. Even so, there's a lot of activities in that list that for many of our home countries would be considered quite acceptable, And many of them have to do with sexual relations. In fact, the sexually immoral adulterers and slanderers alone keep the entire tabloid magazine industry in business, right? That's what they write about every week. You can read about it in the tabloids. Now remember, Paul is talking to Christians here. In chapter five, he makes the point that he is not laying down rules for people outside the church. They aren't we we shouldn't expect them to live according to the standards of Scripture. In fact, he says at one point, if you want to, you know, avoid all people who live you know in ways contrary to scripture, you'd have to leave the world. Because you know that they live by their own standards. But we are called to live by standards. They're different. He's saying this kind of behavior is not acceptable for Christians. I remember this is written to Christians in Corinth. So we're talking about a small community of people who are trying to live out their faith in a society that is overwhelmingly opposed to to the biblical model of life. A society where actually All the things that Paul mentions in that list were common. He talks about those who are sexually immoral. Now, the word, like all the rest in the list, is simply descriptive of someone who does X. So um, a slanderer is someone who tells lies about other people. A thief is someone who steals. And a pornos, which is the word here, is someone who has sex with someone that they're not Married to, and many people in Corinth would have said that was that was okay. They were mainly men, of course, who would say that, because you know women's sexuality was much more controlled. But men could have sex with pretty much anyone they want they wanted. You know, they're um, including their slaves, both male and female, prostitutes, so long as they didn't have sex with someone else's wife. That's covered by adulterers. So someone who has sex with someone who's married to someone else. Corinthians would have been less approving of that. But apparently, these days, certainly in my home culture, it's much more acceptable. Um, This is a comment from uh, a writer in a newspaper in Canada. He says... Candidate Adam Gambroni dropped out of the mayor's race in Toronto when it came to light that he had done. I'll try and do this in the tone that comes over, and he had done something bad. No, he didn't steal from the collection plate. He didn't punch a disabled person. He didn't. He didn't force himself on a nun. But he did have. He did have an affair. Well, I didn't know it was that terrible. Really, I've I've known all kinds of people have done it done it once or twice myself. It's a guy writing in a newspaper. I actually prefer Gambroni's own statement. He writes, This searing experience has taught me, I hope permanently, that a public career with integrity cannot survive deceit in your private life. There's somebody who actually understands, has some insight into himself. He's right, you know. The idea that someone can cheat on his wife or common-law partner whom he knows and not cheat the voters whom he doesn't know is simply naive, in my opinion. You're the same person wherever you go. In American politics, while Newt Gingrich was hounding Bill Clinton for having sex with an intern, he himself was having an affair. And Donald Trump met and pursued Melania at a party which he was attending with his mistress. So at one point, he was cheating on the woman that he was cheating on his wife with. (laughs) I don't know how you keep track of that. (laughs) It only gets worse in the text from the point of view of contemporary society, because next on the list are male prostitutes and practicing homosexuals. Now, there's a lot of debate about how to translate those words. Much of it is about how to avoid giving any more offense than is absolutely necessary. But the basic fact is that, like the rest of the list, these words describe people who do certain things. In this case, men who have sex with other men. And that wasn't that uncommon in Corinth either. One of the characteristics of the Greek upper class was that older men would take younger men under their wing and introduce them into society. And that relationship often included homosexual sex. So these were real issues for the church in Corinth. This isn't this isn't Paul making things up that he has he has a bee in his bonnet about. These are real issues for the church in Corinth that they're struggling with every day as they sought to go about their business and sought to live a life that's faithful to Jesus. Now, Paul says that not many in the church were from, you know, rich, powerful, etc. But that means that some were. So there would have been some people in the church that came from a background where it was normal for certainly the men to have sex with, you know, their slaves and prostitutes, other men. And Paul writes and says, this is unacceptable behavior for Christians, And if it was unacceptable for them then, in a culture that affirmed it, it's unacceptable for us now in a global culture that is moving more and more in the same direction. These are issues that we face, that we need to have a a settled biblical response to. But surely I have the right to do anything I like as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Isn't that what we always hear? Well, that isn't a new argument either. In fact, Paul quotes somebody in Corinth who is saying exactly that. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Maybe you do have the right to do anything. Certainly, there wasn't any law against a number of the things you know in Paul's list there's actually really no law against slandering someone unless you do you know unless they take a case a civil case against you but that's not really the question is it the question is is this helpful is this behavior helpful not just helpful for me but helpful for us as a community helpful for society in general it's so another argument. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. I have these desires, these drives. The sex drive is just a physical appetite. It has no more meaning than a desire for a big Mac. You hear people you hear people argue that the sex drive is like, you know, the the like hunger, and you need to satiate it. No one has ever died from not having sex. Okay? <laughs> It's a stupid argument. It's not even in the same category. <laughs> this letter is close to 2000 years old. But you still hear the same arguments. I have the right to do anything I like as so long as I don't hurt anybody. Sex is just an appetite to be fulfilled like food. It doesn't accept, it doesn't affect me spiritually or morally or emotionally. It's not true. Paul says, "The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised from the Lord, the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also." That was a pretty radical thought in the first century—that God actually cares about what you do with your body. Greeks in general thought of the body as a kind of a prison that held the soul back. The real you was your soul, the spiritual bit. So it didn't really matter what you did with your body. But that's not the way the Bible views the body. Because your body is important enough that God raised Jesus' body from from the dead, and he will raise our bodies from the dead as well. All through Scripture, People are whole beings, body and soul. The one affects the other. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies, not just your souls, your bodies are members of Christ himself? All of you. So it's like, what? This lump of meat? (laughs) This lump of meat is part of Christ himself? so what am I going to do with it? He asks, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, Paul isn't just saying don't visit prostitutes. He's using that as one case to argue the whole, the whole raft of issues of sexual activity that he's, he's addressing. And I want you to notice that Paul is a good 2,000 years ahead of his time here. Because he isn't talking to the prostitutes, which is historically what society has always done. It has always stigmatized the prostitutes and the guys who um, give them trade always get a free pass. No, No, he's talking to the johns. He's talking to the clients and he's saying, you can't call yourself a Christian and sleep around. Because your body, along with the rest of you, belongs to God. And here's the reason, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So he's quoting Genesis 2, the creation story, right? In fact, Mark might correct me here since he's a New Testament scholar, but I think almost every time the New Testament addresses sex, marriage, male-female relationships, it refers back to Genesis. That is a text that tells us who we are, okay? Creation story in Genesis tells us who we are, why we're created. We're created for fellowship with God. We're created to carry out his caring dominion of creation. And we're created to have fellowship with one another, especially in the relationship of marriage. For all the singles in in our midst right now, after Easter I'll be speaking on marriage and one week and then singleness the next. So we'll get to that, okay? So but but marriage is particularly um seen as a model in in uh, Genesis. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, the era of the sexual revolution. And my generation was perhaps more arrogant than most about, you know, certainly one of the the most outspoken in arguing for free sex. Arguing that the old ideas of one man and one woman being faithful to each other for life was outdated. A while ago, I actually heard uh, uh, a podcast of an archive interview with Grace Slick from Jefferson Starship. Jefferson Starship? Jefferson's airplane? See some gray heads nodding, okay. Um, Rock band from the... Anyway... (laughs) And she was saying that just, just like so arrogantly, like, you know, it was fine when we lived in villages to have these ideas, but now we are around so many other people, we should be free to have sex with lots of them. Um, Grace Slick was wrong. The Bible is right. Um, Helen Fisher is an anthropologist, who's an expert on this. Her research shows that when people have sex, they, their body releases, their brain releases com- chemicals oxytocin and vasopressin. That's oxytocin, not oxycodone. That's a whole other issue. Um, Listen to this. Listen to this quote. Her research indicates that lust, infatuation and long-term attachment are distinct drives. Sometimes they're even incompatible drives. Lust, for instance, is often celebrated in pop music as just a rougher, friskier version of romantic love. But Fisher says that's a mistake. Lust is not love. Lust is a desire for sexual gratification no more. But it's a dangerous game. Sleeping with someone just for the sake of sex. Because your levels of oxytocin and vasopressin will go way up and you better be ready for the consequences. These powerful chemicals produce feelings of attachment and you can become emotionally involved with someone who's quite inappropriate. Or... As a character in a movie once said, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, even if you don't? So God has designed our brains so that we bond deeply with people we have sex with. The media and many of our cultures will tell us that just isn't so. You might even think so yourself, but your brain chemistry knows better. The problem is, like any drug, The effect gets less each time you use it. Eventually, people can become incapable of forming lasting relationships because they've broken the mechanism for doing that. So how do we respond to all of this? How do we live as Christians in a global society that is fast becoming almost as sex-soaked as Corinth was? Well, in the middle of this passage, there are some powerful words of grace and hope. Because right after Paul says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idol- uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says very matter-of-factly, and that's what some of you were. And that's what some of you were. The good news of Jesus Christ is that no one is locked into any of these descriptions. No one is locked into any of these descriptions. You can be set free from your past. And any time that we as Christians give the impression that we're inherently better than someone else, we're distorting the gospel. What makes us, any of us any different is not that we're better, But as Paul says here, that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the only difference right there. And that offer is available to anyone who comes to Jesus and asks him to make them clean. Anyone. It's not a limited time offer. It's not just for a select few. Jesus makes that offer to anyone who will come to him to be changed. There's another word of grace in verse 17. It says, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to overcome your past sins and your present temptations on your own. Jesus sends his spirit to live in you, and to change you from the inside out. He unites himself with you, and he walks through life with you. You don't have to do it on your own. And finally, is a word of wisdom from verse 18. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Our sexual drives are powerful things, and they can overwhelm us. Don't play around with them. Adam Giambrone had to step down as a candidate for mayor because when presented with the opportunity, he didn't flee. Instead, he pursued an affair with a young intern. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a good text to remember in this context. It says, No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. There's a door somewhere where you can run away. Use it. That door may be as simple as switching off your computer. Getting up and walking out of the room. The Lord has given you a way out. Look for it. Use it. Over the years, I used to pastor an inner city church, and um, when any given Sunday morning, about 10, maybe 15% some, more, some mornings of the congregation has spent time in jail. So we had all kinds of interesting people in our congregation. And over the years, I've come across a number of women who, even after they become Christians, felt that their past lifestyle had left them soiled. And that if they were ever to get married, they could never walk down the aisle in white. There's a wonderful story about that from Jackie Pullinger. Jackie Pullinger has worked most of her life amongst uh, gang members, drug addicts, and prostitutes in Hong Kong. She tells a story about a very old prostitute who'd been on the street for years, been on drugs for a very long time, and begins to follow Jesus. She's freed from that lifestyle. She meets a man, over 70, like herself, and they start to date and get decide to get married and jackie describes this 70 year old bride her body covered in needle marks coming down the aisle sorry coming down the aisle in a white dress pure and ready for her husband because what jesus has done in her life so don't let anybody ever tell you that our sexual sins can't be forgiven and washed away, from God, washed away by God. Yes, sex is special. it's a power, It has a power that few other things have. But sexual sins are just as forgivable as any others. And that means we can always go to God and we can ask him to cleanse us and forgive us. There's going to be an opportunity in a few moments as we uh, worship together for people to come forward for prayer, people come forward for all kinds of things, prayer for healing, prayer for friends, prayer for all kinds of stuff. If you would like to have someone pray for you for something that, that my message this morning has touched in your life, then feel free to come forward to meet with some of the people who are up here to pray with you. It'll be confidential. Nobody needs to know what you're what you're coming forward for. But if you if you would like to come forward for prayer, please take that opportunity in the next section of the service. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have made us fearfully and wonderfully. Part of that fearful, wonderful nature of us is. That you have made us sexual beings. And we recognize that's a gift from you. It's a gift that sometimes gets abused or twisted, but it's still a gift from you, Lord, and we thank you for it. And Lord, we ask for your grace to walk away from those things that have been dis- in our lives that have been displeasing to you in this area, and for strength and power from your Holy Spirit to walk forward in holiness of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.